Okay. You know, you walked in five seconds late, so. Okay, just so you know, Hidako is sick. I don't know what she's sick with, so if you don't want to get whatever Hidako has, you can leave now, or you can stay and chance it. I have no idea what she has, but she's not well. So, and anybody else who comes in, I'm going to stop and tell them the same thing. But we've got, uh, uh, let's see here, it's uh, uh, Thursday, Revival Study. So we've got uh, the letter Zayin, Psalm 119.49. Remember the word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. This is my comfort and my affliction, for your word has given me life. The proud have me in great derision, yet I do not turn aside from your law. I've remembered your judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself. Indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. This has become mine because I kept your precepts. All right, we got that. Let me see here. Let me move something over here so that I can check on Sergio. Sergio says we're all live and good. Thank you. Thank you, Sergio. And we'll read uh, quickly this day in Christian history. It must be the 13th today. Uh, what month is it? It's August. Okay, I'm just distracted. Hedico's sick, and it just makes things difficult. Okay, August 13th, God often uses the weak and infirm in mighty ways. Elizabeth Payson Prentice was born in 1818 in Portland, Maine, where her father, Edward Payson, served as pastor. Edward, a godly man, was frail throughout his life, and Elizabeth inherited his physical weakness. She was frequently an invalid and almost never without pain. When Elizabeth was 21, she began to realize that in spite of her Christian home, she herself was not a believer. Her realization of her sin became more and more intense. Then she heard a sermon on Christ's ability to save unto the uttermost. Affected deeply, she later wrote, While listening to it, my weary soul rested itself, and I thought, surely it cannot be wrong to think of the Savior although he is not mine. With this conclusion, I gave myself up to admire, to love, and to praise him, to wonder why I had never done so before, and to hope that all the congregation around me were joining with me in acknowledging him to be chief among 10,000 and the one altogether lovely. On her way home from church, she could hardly believe the peace she was experiencing, which was so unlike the negative emotions that had long troubled her soul. In 1845, she married George L. Prentice, a Presbyterian pastor. Six years later, the family moved to New York City with their two children. Soon thereafter, their son died, and the following year, Elizabeth gave birth to their third child, who also died rather suddenly. One night, as the grief-stricken parents returned from visiting the graves of their children, Elizabeth's emotions reached the breaking point. In despair, she cried to her husband, Our home is broken up, our lives wrecked, our hopes shattered, our dreams dissolved. Her husband's wise counsel to her was, but it is in times like these that God loves us all the more, just as we love our own children more when they are sicker, troubled in distress. Elizabeth immediately took her Bible and began reading. Then she searched for her hymnal for comfort. She came to Near My God to Thee. As she meditated on the words of the hymn and on the words her husband had shared with her, she began composing a poem in the same metrical pattern as Near My God to Thee. Elizabeth went on to write many poems, publishing a volume containing 123. 
Elizabeth Prentice died on August 13, 1878 in Dorset, Vermont. The pastor of the local, <coughs> excuse me, Congregational Church conducted the funeral on the following day. In his hand, he held a small, well-worn volume in which Elizabeth had written down special anniversaries and memorable events with a Bible verse for each day of the year. The pastor first read the verse for August 13th. I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Then he read the verse for August 14th, the day of the funeral. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and your labor of love, which he have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints. The graveside service closed with singing Elizabeth's hymn, More Love to Thee, and during and ending with these words, Then shall my la latest breath whisper thy praise, this be the parting cry my heart shall raise, this still its prayer shall be, more love, O Christ, to thee, more love to thee. Elizabeth Prentice discovered that the greater her need, the greater God's love was to her. How do you respond to Christ in love, or can you love him more? John 14, 21, those who obey my commandments are the ones who love me, and because they love me, my Father will love them, and I will love them, and I will reveal myself to each one of them. So good stuff there. <clears throat> Let's see, I have um, no new prayer requests. I'm sure a lot of them from the past couple weeks are still outstanding. In fact, I know that they are. Um, Hidako isn't well. She's uh, uh, been sick for a couple days and just miserable. So whatever. Um, we'll have her in prayer. And then I was going to pray for my friend Jackie. And I was praying for her while cleaning it back a while ago. And then I got an email that says she's fine. So bonus there. So we don't have to worry about that. And we'll just go ahead and uh, I guess get into Bible class. Jim and Linda are gone. Oh, Linda doesn't come anymore anyway. She likes to stay at home. So watch online. So uh, Jim's not here. Mom will probably show up late as usual. And let's see, we're in the book of Galatians. I think we're going to finish the book today, but we're in Galatians chapter 2, verse 17. So you never know, we might just whip right through this. <coughs> What's that? <laughs> oh yes, we got to pray. Thank you, Burke. Got to say a prayer. I'm you don't have Jim, and then things get off, and there you go. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for reminders about our responsibilities, especially of coming to you in prayer. It's one of the uh, precious things that we can do in life is to commune with you, and uh, we certainly do that right now. We pray for any that's afflicted, any that is uh, down in heart and soul. My friend, uh, Thana, we're waiting to hear about uh, a diagnosis for her, and it's on my mind as well, so we add her into the prayers. and. Lord, anybody else is just struggling with life right now, whether it's a physical thing or whether it's something else, even this crazy coronavirus that's got everybody scared and unwitted, uh, we would pray that they would have peace and calm in their life and they would not let this uh, damage the calm that uh, they could have by trusting in you and resting in Christ. So we would pray that, we would pray that in his beautiful name, and we also pray for the class ahead that things would be proper and handled rightly and that your word would be uh, exalted and honored and not uh, uh, anything uh, wrong in this study. If there is, that you would uh, alert people to it and have them not 
follow something which is incorrect concerning this precious gift you've given us. And we do pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Let's see here. We got uh, Galatians 2. Oh, this is the last verse of Galatians 2. Okay, verse uh, 17. We'll go back and read a little bit from 12, I guess. That's a paragraph to make sure we have some context. Verse 12, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. The one to the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading sorry, to life. Oh, I'm in two Corinthians. I'm sorry. I'm glad you said. Well, that's where the uh, the thing was when I was standing over there. Thank you for catching me on that. I'm reading the wrong book, folks. So just ignore what I just read. Um, so yeah, it's two seventeen, and that so it's not the end of the uh, chapter after all. I'm glad you said that because I would have kept reading until I got to verse 17 and then started analyzing something completely different. When I was standing over there, you saw all of the bookmarks fell out of the Bible, and I put them in, and it was on 2 Corinthians uh, 2. Corinthians 2. So, sorry about that, folks. Um, all these people at home are just thinking, what's that guy doing? <laughs> Too much glue or something. I don't know. Okay, we'll go back. Um, yes, now we're going to go to 11. That's a paragraph here. So, we're going to start at uh, Galatians 2, 11. Sorry about that. I'm glad somebody caught me before I... 15 is a paragraph. Well, in your Bible, in this one, oh, it's 11. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, now, when Peter had come to Antioch, oh, yeah, we were talking about Peter last week. I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even if we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Remember last week, I was incredulous. How can you have that three times in one verse and people still not get this right? But there you go. When you have your blinders on, you have a presupposition about some point in the Bible, you will go to your grave demanding that your way is correct. And we can't do that. We have to say, Lord, what are you telling us? Not what we want the Lord to be telling us. It has to be Christ-centered, and it can't be me-centered. Anyway, verse 17 says, <clears throat> But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. Okay, what does that mean? That's a pretty wonderful uh, set of words there. It kind of matches what he talks about in the book of Romans. The words in this verse are difficult, and various scholars have proposed several suggestions as to what Paul's intent is. The key to which interpretation is correct is dependent on whether he is still referencing his conversation with Peter or he is now directing a theological commentary to the Galatians. 
there appears to be no reason to assume the latter. It is not until verse 3-1 that he actually addresses the Galatians by name. Therefore, it is probable that he is still recalling his rebuke to Peter. And so what he is saying is based on Peter's withdrawing himself from the Gentiles when the other Jews from James showed up previously. Showed up. Previously, he had sought to be justified by Christ. He believed in his Lord and he received the Holy Spirit. In this capacity, he lived free, in freedom from the law, which was fulfilled by Christ. We're talking about Peter. Peter was saved. He was living in the freedom fulfilled by Christ. Excuse me. He had fellowshiped with the house of Cornelius, and he had fellowshiped with the Gentiles in Antioch as well. That's all clear in Scripture. However, in this freedom, from which was brought about by his relationship with Christ, did he and the other Jews with him, who also fellowshiped with the Gentiles, find themselves to be sinners. In other words, if Christ's work is what allowed the Jews to unite with the Gentiles, but it was actually sinful in relation to the law, which presupposes that the law would still be in effect, then it would mean that they were sinning against the law by fellowshipping with the Gentiles, which was because of the work of Christ. Then it would then make Christ a minister of sin. Everybody got that? You see the, what's going on there? They are fellowshipping with the Gentiles because it's okay, but, but in doing that, they're sinning against the law, which Christ is obviously not set aside. They're still under the law, and so Christ is a minister of sin. He's telling them to do something which is violating the law. That can't be. Why? Because Christ fulfilled the law. He said, this is the what covenant in my blood? It's the new. If there's a new, there can't be an old. It is done. It is an old. It is obsolete, etc. That's in the book of Hebrews. There are not two covenants working concurrently. Okay, you're either under one covenant or you're under the other, but you can't be under both. People that follow Christ and still follow the law are trying to have two things at once and they are conflicted. And by default, they go back under the law. They do not remain in Christ. That's the idea there. The repercussions of this, I'll read it again just so that anybody that didn't get it. In other words, if Christ's work is what allowed the Jews, like Peter to go down to Cornelius's house, allowed the Jews to unite with the Gentiles, but it was actually sinful in relation to the law, and then we'll say that the law is still in effect, which presupposes that the law would still be in effect, then it would mean that they were sinning against the law, okay, by fellowshipping with the Gentiles, which Christ is allowed, but which the law disallows, which was because of the work of Christ, and it would then make Christ a minister of sin, okay, that would be the case. The repercussions of this would be obvious. The entire Christian message would be one of sin, and all people would have to abandon it and return to an obedience to the law of Moses. If this were the case, then Christ would have died for absolutely no reason at all. There would actually be no new covenant in his blood. If we have to go back under the law, the new covenant is null and void. It never got off to a, a, a proper start, in other words. That is the ramifications of what he is saying to Peter right now. Charles Ellicott explains this dilemma quite well. Is therefore Christ the minister of sin, he asks. Our English version is probably right in making this a question. It is put ironically and as a sort of reductio ad absurdum, which means reducing something to the absurd, of the Judaizing position. The Judaizers maintained the necessity of a strict fulfillment of the Mosaic law. They, however, still called themselves Christians, 
And here, St. Paul had a hold upon them. You call yourselves Christians, he says, and yet you insist upon the Mosaic law. You say that a man cannot be justified without it. You must be under the law. You've got to adhere to Moses, which is what they argued in Acts chapter 15. All right. It follows that we who have exchanged the service of the law for the service of Christ are not justified. In other words, our relation to Christ has made us not better, but worse, a thought which no Christian can entertain. This is the problem with people that try to say you have to adhere to this precept of the law or that precept of the law or any precept of the law. Talking about the feasts not being fulfilled yet. Okay, we've got the first three were fulfilled when Christ came and the next or first four and the next three will be fulfilled when Christ returns. No, that is absolutely incorrect. You can't eat pork. No, that is incorrect. I don't care what precept you pull out of the law of Moses. It is done. It is fulfilled and the entire law, the whole thing, lock, stock, and barrel, is obsolete. It is annulled. It is set aside. It is nailed to the cross. And as it says elsewhere, wiped out the handwriting. That's Colossians 2 as well. So there you go. It is, it is over. All right. So the rhetorical question of Paul stands. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Because using that logic, he would be. The answer from Peter's lips must be, certainly not. I know he's not. If otherwise, then it would mean that Christ's death and the introduction of this new faith was opposed to holiness. The horror of this is too much to contemplate. If there is no justification through faith in Christ, then there is no justification for any person ever, because nobody can be saved by the law of Moses. Because if the, the man who does these things, Leviticus 18 verse 5, shall, that's right, live by them. And the record is written all the way from the day of the giving of the law, all the way through until the time of Malachi, and even into the New Testament, which is still Christ fulfilling the law of the law of Moses. Okay, so you're under the old covenant, but you're in the New Testament. All that time, no person continued to live. They all died. There is an exception. Elijah was taken out before death. Okay, and that's for a purpose, and we'll see that coming soon to a tribulation period near you. All the rest of them, however, died because they all had sin. All right, Elijah's in whatever state. The, you know, you got to think about Elijah. Why is he still alive in Enoch? They were both raptured out. They're both coming back in the tribulation period, and they'll both die when they do. But why are they still alive? Well, we're on this earth, right? This earth is where all of the problems of you know, uh, uh, well, not just sin, but, you know, bad food, you get sick. You, uh, the people before the flood, in other words, lived in an idyllic environment. Even though they had sin and they eventually died, they lived thousands of years. Well, ostensibly, they lived hundreds of years. 969, was it? Uh, okay, uh, what's his name? Uh, Methuselah, thank you. Um, but if you're in an environment where there isn't all of this degradation of the human body, like they are right now, then they could ostensibly live for a really long time. But they will be returning to earth. They will die during the tribulation period. And then on, after three days, they'll be raised up and taken to heaven. We know what Revelation says, but it's not improbable that those two people were taken out and they're still alive is what I'm trying to say. Because they're not in the... Uh, it, what I'm getting at is if you look at the, the ages of the people, you got 
pre-flood and they're all recorded. You get a chart. I think we've got one on the wall in the back here. And all of their ages are really, really long. And they're they're about the same. You know, 777 years was Lamech. And you got these guys 900 years, 930, 969, whatever. So they're all very long years. But after the flood of Noah, it goes just like that. It makes an actually geometric curve going from this long life down. And you can follow it. It's a curve, okay? And, you know, that's one thing that could not have been pre-planned because the people had no idea what a geometric curve was back then and nobody mapped it out. But somebody did it recently, I don't know, 20 years or 50 years ago or whatever, but you can see this curve, how it drops down. So that is the point of uh, those people. But for all these other people in the Old Testament, all the way up until the time of Jesus, they all died every one of them, including two of them that were actually resuscitated. We had the son of the widow of Nain, and we also had the uh, uh, Lazarus, okay? And people say, well, what about them? That was what we would call, that was not a resurrection. That was a restoration of life. Those people were restored so Christ could prove that he was the Messiah. He was making theological lessons about himself, etc., for Israel. But there is no record that they are still alive. If they were, everybody on the planet would be going and finding out what's your secret, okay? We'd all be getting their, their autograph. I got an autograph from Lazarus when I was in Israel. That didn't happen. They did die again, okay? But that's the point of this. If there is no justification through faith in Christ, then there is no justification for any person ever. The law can save no one. If Christ's death only adds to the condemnation of the law, what a pitiful death it would have been indeed, right? But that's not the case. Christ did die for our sins. And, you know, I was at the Thai restaurant today for lunch, and there's a young lady there that's uh, waiting on somebody else. And we got into a conversation, and uh, she, I asked her, you know, what about uh, uh, what's going to happen when you die? And she says, I don't know. And I said, well, you're going to go somewhere. And she says, well, I, I, I think I'm going to go up. I'm a pretty good person. You know, the typical answer you give. Now, this is a person that goes to church and she believes in the resurrection. She believes in the crucifixion of Christ. She just didn't understand what it meant to her. She says, oh, I believe that Christ died for my sins. Well, I said, well, then answer that way when somebody asks you a question. Why should you go to heaven? Your answer is because of Christ's sacrifice for me. His blood covers all my sins. And I explained to her very carefully how that goes. That is the answer that we want to give people. Because if you don't know your own assurance, even if she believes and she's saved, which apparently, you know, that's what it says. If you believe that he died for your sins and was raised again, you will be saved, right? I mean, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 3 and 4. So she's probably saved, but just did not know how to process that. But if you can't process that for somebody else that wants to know, then you're not a very effective witness as a Christian. So... That's, you know, something that hopefully her next, the next time she speaks to somebody, she will say, quite frankly, I am saved and I'm going to heaven because of Christ, not because of me being a good person or anything like that. It's just, you know, you're young, you're 19, 20 years old, and you're confused about theology. What kind of an answer are you going to give? I couldn't have given one at that age. Okay, life application. <clears throat> Christ's death must be, and it is, the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. That's the lesson of this particular verse right here. Christ is not a minister of sin. He has freed us from sin. That means that when we do something wrong, it is not being counted against us. Where is that recorded? 2 Corinthians 5.19. That's exactly right. We, we are not being imputed sin. If we are not being imputed sin, which it says right there in the Bible that we are not now being imputed sin, those who are in Christ Jesus, that means that you cannot 
lose your salvation. Okay, if somebody is teaching you that you can lose your salvation, they start pulling out verses which are obviously out of context because it wouldn't contradict itself in Scripture. They are not properly handling Scripture. If you are saved by Christ, if you are no longer being imputed sin and the wages of sin is death, then you are saved forever. You will never be spiritually cut off from God again. Okay, verse 218. Let's see here. Um, for uh, if I build again, this is Paul writing, for if I build again those things which I destroyed, obviously speaking of the law, I make myself a transgressor. Here we come upon a logical conclusion of the words of the previous verse. Paul had just asked, but if while we seek to be justified in Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? By allowing Jews and Gentiles to eat together under the new faith which is found in Christ, which Peter clearly did both at the house of Cornelius and at the, you know, the gathering in Antioch, then Christ would be a minister of sin if the law were still in force. He would be ministering sin. This is because it was a practice forbidden within Judaism and especially under the law of Moses. However, Paul says this certainly was not the case. I wish that people could just read this and understand it for what it says. You get these people that, well, I can't eat pork because, and where do you get that from? Well, that's what my pastor says. Well, then you should probably find another church or at least have somebody go and instruct him on what the book of Galatians says. Christ does not minister sin. Now, to explain this to the dulled ears of Peter, he begins with four. Remember, he's still speaking to Peter. Peter has not logically, think of that girl now. She has no theological training at all, all right? She went to church her life. She's heard the message. She obviously at some point believed that Jesus died for her sins and was resurrected. She can't explain it, right? Peter was with Christ. Peter heard all of the words. He spent the 40 days afterward, you know, conversing with the risen Lord. He gave them the, the uh, you know, the big schooling on the things he had done, okay? And then Paul has to re-explain this to him. If Peter can't get it right, how can we expect people in the world to get it right unless they come to Bible studies and they're willing to extend themselves to learn the word of God? Now, to explain this to the dulled ears of Peter, he begins with four. If Christ were a minister of sin then the following proposition that he will relate to him will be a certainty. If I build again those things which I destroyed, that is speaking of the things mandated under the law. If I build them again, Christ has destroyed those things. Whatever you eat doesn't matter. He builds it back up. If I build those things again, which I destroyed, they are those things which are now destroyed through Christ's finished work. To the Christian, they have been nailed to his cross, Colossians 2.14, I think. However, if we reinsert those same precepts, this is speaking to the people that want to be in the Hebrew Roots movement or whatever, if we reinsert those same precepts from under the law as binding, a significant issue arises. He says that if this is the case, then I make myself a transgressor. If we have left the law, which is actually still binding, then we have transgressed the law, right? Here I'm sitting over having a pork sandwich with Peter and the guys at Antioch. I've left the law. I'm making myself a transgressor. If this is so, then we are guilty before the law. If we are guilty before the law because of faith in Christ, then Christ would, in fact, be a minister of sin. He's making this argument, and as, uh, what's his name, Charles Ellicott says, it's a reductio ad absurdum. 
It's reducing something to the absurd so that you get the point. You see how stupid you're acting? And this is Paul, Paul speaking to Peter. Do you see how stupid you're acting? You're acting inane in what you are thinking. You've already gone through this with Christ, and now you're rebuilding what has already been destroyed. Okay? When I say stupid, I know it's not a nice word, but if you look in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, it says people are stupid twice, and one of them is speaking about himself. Okay, what's that, Proverbs 30 or 31? Anyway, I'm the stupidest of all men. So, I mean, it's not without precedent is what I'm saying. And if I say the word moron, please don't get excited because Paul uses the word moros, which is the uh, root of the word moron, again and again and again, speaking of theologically inept people. He's calling them a moron. Yes, go ahead. I don't understand how Peter can be so confused because I don't. the 15th chapter of Acts, the first time, he says, how can we put this burden on people? Back on people. He's the one that stood up and said it. Yes. That's right. And, so and I think I think peer he... Peer pressure. That's peer, peer, peer pressure. pressure. That's what it is. Peer pressure will get you every time. You don't want to be the odd man out. And so, as he said, he started to withdraw when these people from James came. All right. So you're right. But how can that be? How can we be willing to compromise our faith and our doctrine in Christ because of what somebody else thinks? Who cares? If you are doing what is right according to Scripture, and especially when Scripture is in accord with the Word of Christ, who died for our sins and annulled the law, why would we care what anybody thinks? You just stand up, be firm, and if they don't like you anymore, hey, there are a lot of people that don't like Charlie Garrett. I might as well just add you to the list. That's what we have to say because, I mean, it's not worth it. It is not worth compromising doctrine to be nice to people. All right? But I think sometimes at least for myself, there are times when I'm the only one who's saying, uh... I know, and then you question your own? Yes. I agree. And so you're like, uh, maybe I've got it wrong. Yeah, and, I need to question and, my own theology. You're right. I, I completely get that. If you understand what you... I don't know if they heard her on, you know, on the, uh, on the, uh, because of the microphone being up here, but, uh, uh, she, uh, said that it, when you're with five other people and they're all Christians, they, you know, missionaries or whatever, and you're debating with them and all five of them disagree with you, you start questioning your own theology. Am I right about this? And so that's kind of a problem there. I mean, where do I stand? So that's why you need to know your Bible. You need to be firm in it and you need to uh, uh, just stand firm on the word of Christ. And we're going to take a really quick break before we finish this thought. Where are you coming from? Israel. Israel. What's your name? Oh, you're Evodos. It's good to have you here. Very nice to meet you. Uh, now, you're up in uh, Virginia or something now, aren't you? Georgia, right? Georgia, okay. Well, it's good. To, how long are you here for? Uh, for now. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. It's good to have you. We're right in the, if you got your Bible, go to Galatians chapter uh, 2, 18. Uh, is where the verse we're in right now. We're just analyzing it, speaking about the work of Christ. So uh, let me see where I was. I had my finger right here. Okay, we're going to go back just to the beginning of that paragraph, and I'll do it again. How, this is a friend of Sergio's. You've known Sergio most of your life, haven't you? Ah, almost all of his life. Wow. However, if we reinsert those same precepts from the law, here's the law of Moses, as binding, a significant issue arises. He says that if this is the case, then I make myself a transgressor. He's transgressing against the law because he's rebuilding the law. If we have left the law, which is actually still binding, which it's not, but he's making the, the assumption that it could be during this scenario, then we have transgressed the law. If this is so, then we are guilty before the law. If we are guilty before the law because of faith in Christ, then Christ would, in fact, be a minister of sin. 
as Paul would say elsewhere, certainly not, or may it never be so. Of course, Christ is not a minister of sin. Charles Ellicott, again, he's very good in this type of theology. Charles Ellicott beautifully explains the dilemma for those in Christ if, if the law is still binding. If we are still under the law of Moses, here's your dilemma. But Christ is not a minister of sin. The thought is not to be tolerated. For on the contrary, the sin is seen, not in leaving the law for Christ, but going back from Christ to the law. The sin is seen doubly. For on one theory, the theory that the law is valid, it was wrong to give it up. While on the other theory, that Christianity has taken its place, it is still more wrong to restore the fabric that had once been broken down. Either way, no matter which way you do it, if the law is still binding and you've left the law to come under the grace of Jesus Christ, you've sinned. And if you have come to Jesus Christ and you are uh, pursuing that and then you rebuild the law, you're sinning. It doesn't matter which way you go, and Christ is not a minister of sin. As he said, the thought is not to be tolerated. Either way, there is sin involved unless Christ is the fulfillment of the law, and if our hope is in him and not in the law. As he is the fulfillment of it, Christ died for our sins. He's the uh, sinless son of God. He came from eternity itself. He entered the womb of Mary. Uh, the power of the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. Christ became incarnate, and from there he was born under the law. He lived perfectly without sinning. He died in fulfillment of the law. Every type and picture that is to be found in the law, he fulfilled, and thus the law is fulfilled in him. And he initiated a new covenant in his blood, thus the law of Moses is annulled. It is obsolete. It is set aside. That's Hebrews 7, 13, 7, 18, 8, 13, and 10, 9. Okay, it's also in Colossians 2, verse 14. Christ is the fulfillment of all of it. The law is nailed to the cross. Christ died on the cross. It is finished. Okay, either way, there is sin involved unless Christ is the fulfillment of the law, which he is. And if our hope is in him and not in the law, as he is the fulfillment of it, then we actually have not given it up at all. Rather, our hope is in the law. Every person here, our hope should be in the law. Why? But only so far as Christ's fulfillment of it. That's where our hope in the law is. It's not in our fulfillment of it. That's why we don't observe the law, because he's already fulfilled it. And if he hasn't fulfilled it, then it doesn't make any difference at all. And we might as well go back to what Paul says elsewhere. He says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Okay. And what was it that uh, that came from the book of, I know, but where did he cite that from? Cite it from the book of Isaiah. The people are hemming Israel or uh, Jerusalem in. They figured there's no hope, no hope at all. And so he said, let us, you know, slaughter lambs and feast and uh, let us eat and drink because surely tomorrow we die. And the Lord said, as I have said this, there will be no atonement for that sin forever. They will never be forgiven for that because they had rejected Christ or the hope of Christ. They had rejected the Lord and said, we're going to die. There is no hope. And they had said, the Lord can't save us. And he said, there will never be atonement for that sin. That's one other time. Where is it that he says that in the Old Testament? There will be no sacrifice or atonement for that sin. It was the sin of the sons of Eli. Remember, they were taking the sacrifices and they were profaning the sacrifices. He said, there is no atonement for that. Okay, well, Christ is, or Paul was using that same line of thought in the New Testament. If Christ 
didn't come. If he didn't fulfill the law for us, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And the same thought is here, right? If Christ didn't come and fulfill the law, we might as well just go party our lives away. It makes no difference because God failed. That's how severe it is, okay? So uh, the law remains God's standard for all people. All people will, that does not mean, and please don't go saying, Charlie said that the world will be, uh, the world is under the law until they come to Christ. Now, the law was given to one group of people and only one group of people. It's the people of Israel, okay? The rest of the world's doing their own thing, but that does not mean that the standard changes, the standard is Christ who fulfilled the law. So whether you're under law or whether you're not under law, it doesn't make any difference. When you stand before him, you will be judged by him, by his standard. And no person can meet that standard unless they are in Christ. Unless you come to Christ and say, I receive what Jesus Christ did. I accept his payment for my sins. All of my wayward deeds and all of my misconcepts of who he was or who he is, I am now resting all of that in him. I receive his death, burial, and resurrection, and then you are judged by that standard, and it is done. You are what is called justified. That is a legal decision made by God that you can no longer be imputed sin because of what Christ has done. You are free from that. Okay, the law remains God's standard for all people, but there is a distinction between believers and unbelievers. For those not in Christ, it will be the standard by which they are judged, apart from Christ's work. For those in Christ, the law will be the standard by which they are judged, inclusive of his work. None shall stand justified apart from him. All will be justified who are in him. There is only those two options, and they are absolute. If you're not in Christ, you are absolutely condemned. If you are in Christ, you are absolutely saved. You are justified, and it is done. Okay, in this verse, Paul speaks in the first person. However, it should be taken as a general proposition for all people. His words were certainly speaking to Peter and the Jews who had departed from the truth, but they apply to anyone else who would do so as well. Having said that, in the next verse, which is verse 19, coming soon to a verse near you, the first person continues to be used, but it is Paul speaking of himself. This is evident by his choice of the emphatic word for I, which will begin that verse. Life application, trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Anything else is a self-condemning act. All right, now, Having said that, somebody asked me about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit a day ago, and I sent him an old sermon that I did years ago out at Turtle Beach. But blasphemy of the Holy Spirit has two meanings or two uh, significations from the Gospels. The first one is if you take where it's uh, relayed in Matthew and you take it where it's relayed in Luke, you can get two different concepts of it. I think it's in Matthew where the people saw Christ they saw his work and they attributed it to Beelzebub. By attributing the work of God to Beelzebub, which is, you know, the uh, prince of the demons, by doing that, then it is ascribing God's work to the devil. And that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's, he said, any word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but any, uh, how does it go? Something against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Okay, they are ascribing the work of God to the devil, basically. Okay, that's unforgivable. That cannot happen to any person today. Tell me why. Christ, that's right, Christ is not here. He died, he resurrected, he is gone. 
That can't happen today because he's not here. We can't evidently see him doing these things. All we have is the written record of what he did. The other aspect of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit would be to reject Christ's work, okay? And that would be an ongoing rejection of Christ's work. That can happen today, but it is only so far as your last breath. You can reject Christ's work all of your life, and you can say, I just, I don't accept Jesus. I don't accept Jesus. And you get to your final day in your hospital bed, and you say, you know what? I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I've been fighting him my whole life, but you know what? I, I'm sure that that's not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That is accepting of the work of Christ, and it is pleasing to God. If you die in your last breath still rejecting Christ, you know, I'll t give you an example of that that I heard. My mom told me that she heard a, a talk by uh, Stalin's daughter. I don't know if, uh, if she did it in English or if it was translated or what, but Stalin's daughter said that Stalin just hated God, okay? And he was finally on his deathbed, and there he is, getting ready to punch his final ticket, and he raised himself up from the bed, and he shook himself at God, and he said something like, I, I, I have nothing to do with you, and then he died. That's, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because he has rejected the only possible means of being saved by God. It's through the blood of Christ. Now, that, I may have gotten that story wrong. I heard it years and years ago, but it was basically that. And uh, uh, I, apparently she was a Christian, but he was not. And she was telling how he fought to the very end and just said, I want nothing to do with you. So bad stuff. Okay, 219. Let's see here, 219. Uh, for I through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. That's very simple right there. Think it through. I, through, the, well, let me read again. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. Here we go. For is given as Paul's continued thought on verse 17. He gave a hypothetical for consideration of Peter and the other Jews who were falling back on the observance of the law in verse 18. Now he gives a true life example of what should be the reality of the situation for a true Christian. In his words, I is emphatic. In other words, after the hypothetical, he speaks of himself in the matter. I, through the law, died to the law. There's much debate over the meaning of these words. Some scholars suppose that he is speaking of the new faith in Christ, and so in essence, by the new law or faith, I have died to the other. In other words, my adherence to Christianity has caused me to cast away my adherence to the law. Other scholars see this as a consideration of the true nature of the law of Moses. In contemplating its true nature and design, he had become dead to it. He had cast away any hope of being justified by it, knowing that by the law no man could be justified in God's sight. Okay? However, the next verse actually explains what, God, what Paul is thinking about. One cannot arbitrarily cast away a law which is still in effect. The covenant was made, the conditions were set, and there was no chance of bargaining, bargaining one's way out of that law. Okay, that's why I say Israel stood at the base of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. The law was given. They said all that the Lord has said we will do. Okay, then they failed when Moses was up there receiving the law, right? They made the gold calf and they blah, blah, blah. So they went through the process again. And it says, 
uh, I'm going to get the chapter wrong, but it's probably like uh, Exodus 32 or something. It, they go through the renewing of the covenant. And they say, we will hear, and we will do. Whatever you say, we will perform that. And they said, we will, we will do and we will hear. We will do and we will hear. They're committing to doing it even before hearing it. Everything about the law of Moses, when they agreed to that, is binding on the people forever. They can never get out of that. And that's why I say, in the world today, you've got Jewish people that have come to Christ, and they are relieved from that burden. But the collective body of Israel, to this day, is still bound by the law of Moses. That's why they've gone through 2,000 years of trouble, is because they rejected the only hope of getting out of that law. Daniel 9 gives them the, the provision, and it's coming soon, that they will once again begin the temple sacrifices. They will you know, have the temple. They'll have all of the trappings of the old covenant. They have seven more years, according to Daniel 9, 24 through 27, to get out of this covenant. They are going to find that the old covenant still cannot save, and they will finally, it's prophesied right there in Zechariah chapter 12, it's prophesied elsewhere in the Old Testament, they will finally call out to Jesus, and they will, as collective people, come out of that law. But they can't bargain themselves out of it now. It doesn't matter. We got a person here that is from Israel. He's a Jewish person. If he did not come to Christ and he left Israel and said, I'm not a Jew anymore. I'm not going to be a part of that anymore. It still is binding on him as if he was sitting there in Israel trying to observe the law of Moses. It doesn't make any difference. He is a Jew and his fathers agreed to that. You can't bargain your way out of it. The only way to come out of under that yoke is to come to Jesus Christ individually or nationally. And that's the mistake that theologians make in the church today. The theologians in the church, and I'm talking about replacement theologians, say that the church has replaced Israel. Israel's no longer, I'm sorry, until they, as a people, because God will never break his side of that covenant. Israel may have, the Jewish people individually, collectively may have, but he will never break his promises. And his promises, I will see you through to the end of this redemptive process. He will not reject those people. And that is the wonderful thing about Christ and about God and his promises is that even when we are unfaithful, he will always be faithful. He will never, never, never be unfaithful. Okay. And that's, that right there should help all of us to understand that when we are saved by Christ, he will never be unfaithful to that promise, even if we are. Once again, the doctrine of eternal salvation is written right into the words but you have to use Israel as the template. If you think that the church has replaced Israel, you might as well just think that you can lose your salvation as well. It is impossible. Okay, let's go on. I'll uh, read this again, starting here. However, the next verse actually explains what Paul is thinking about. One cannot arbitrarily cast away a law which is in effect. The covenant was made, the conditions were set, and there was no chance of bargaining one's way out of that law. They are stuck. As a Jew, he was obligated to it. This is Paul speaking of himself. Every precept of it. However, within the writings of the law, there was the promise of a redeemer who would come. Now, we talked about that in a sermon. I think it was two weeks ago, and maybe it was last week, but I think it was from the first half of the uh, Ten Commandments sermon, is that Isaiah says, I will redeem Israel. Well, that's after they became established as a people. They've already received the law of Moses. What do they need to be redeemed from? Obviously, from the law of Moses itself. I will redeem my people. 
if you're under the law, you certainly don't need to be redeemed to the law, and therefore it means you need to be redeemed from the law. That's what Christ came to do. As a Jew, he was obligated to it, every precept of it. But within the writings of the law, there was the promise of a redeemer who would come all the way through the law of Moses and the prophets afterwards. This is now what Paul is referring to. Christ fulfilled the law and died in fulfillment of it. Thus, all who call on Christ for their justification have died to the law. This is so that such a person might live to God. I've lived, I've died to the law, therefore I can now live to God. If I'm under the law of Moses, I'm not living to God. I'm living to be obedient to the contract that I made with God or my forefathers made with God. That's all that I can hope for is to be obedient to the law of Moses. And we've seen all the way through the Old Testament and the continued Jewish people's progress for the past 2,000 years that none of them have been faithful to the law of Moses. And they've all died. And therefore, as it says, thus all who call on Christ for their justification have died to the law. This is so that such a person might live to God. You can now live to God because Christ has freed you from that burden. Further, within the law itself, there is a provision which removes one from the law through the penalty of death. He will allude to this in the next verse, and he will expand on it in Galatians 3, 10 through 13. This act, then, is what Paul is speaking of. Paul and any other, hang on a sec, yes, Paul and any other who is represented in this same case has died to the law through the death of Christ. In that death, the law is annulled. It no longer has power over him. Okay, so in Israel today, you've got all these Messianic Jews. Okay, I love to listen to their music. I listen to it all day, every day, almost every day. And they're worshiping Jesus. And a couple times a year, they get together and they have these big musical celebrations. And every uh, Sabbath, they, they observe on the uh, Sabbath day, they get together and they have their congregations and they're worshiping the Lord. That is who this is speaking of. Paul and any other who is represented in this same case has died to the law through the death of Christ. They are all freed from that bondage. Okay, they've come to Christ. But guess what? All of the other people of Israel are still under the bondage of the law. So you got this little pocket of people that is actually the only free people in all of Israel because they understand who Christ is. He's the Messiah, not of just the Gentiles, but of the Jews. He is the Messiah of the world, okay? In that death, Christ's death, the law is annulled. Once again, that's uh, uh, Hebrews 7, 18, 8, 13, and 10, 9, uh, Colossians 2.14, the law is annulled. It no longer has power over him or them, okay? Instead, Christ has dominion over that soul from that point on. For this reason, through Christ, one might live, we might live to God. Paul's words of the coming verse explain this exactingly. This is still Paul speaking to Peter. He's trying to get him to reason it through. You're doing these things, but don't you understand what's happened to you? What's happened to me? All of the people that have come to Christ, we've been freed from this burden. Life application. Sometimes folks try so hard to analyze the meaning of a single verse that they simply fail to look at the surrounding context. Context is King. I said that to somebody a couple days ago. Somebody was posting on the uh, uh, Facebook. Somebody made a thread and my name got included in there. Well, ask Charlie Garrett. You know, you know you're a friend of him. And the guy's arguing that you are going to go through the tribulation period because Jesus says in Matthew 24, blah, blah, blah. And I've had the same argument with this guy before. And I said, listen, just so you know, he's speaking to Israel. 
There was no Gentile church at the time. The Gentiles were never mentioned. There's no hint of them. He is getting Israel to understand what is coming in their future. And then my final words were, guess what? Context actually matters. You take things out of context, you will have poor theology. And a good example of this is when people will cite Jesus' words of Matthew 24, and they're proving that you have to go through the tribulation period, or you're going for three and a half years, and then you'll be raptured. All these crazy ideologies based on Matthew 24. Okay. And then if you ask them, why should you go to heaven? What will they say? What do you think their answer will be? Because Jesus died for my sins, right? That's what a Christian is going to say. Jesus died for my sins, and so I'm going to heaven. Well, then why would you have to pray to be found worthy to, be, to stand before the Son of Man? Because he says that in the same context, doesn't he? If he is speaking to Israel under the law, then what he says to us does not apply. So people will say, that applies, but this part of what Jesus says doesn't apply. And you have what? It's called a, begins with a C and ends with contradiction. Anybody? You've got a contradiction in your theology. Why? Because you have taken and inserted yourself in the wrong place in the dispensational model. Okay? You don't do that. Take Matthew 24 in your rapture theology and put it aside. It is incorrect. I know teachers all over the world love to quote Matthew 24, especially no one knows the day and the hour, and they say, see, we don't know when the rapture is, and it has this much to do with the rapture. Okay, so please take all of your theology from the book of Matthew while Jesus is speaking to Israel under the law and set it aside for that understanding and not for your theological understanding of what is happening in this dispensation. Okay, sometimes folks try so hard to analyze the meaning of a single verse that they simply fail to look at the context which is surrounding it. Context is king when interpreting what a verse is trying to tell us. That's the first thing you should always do with the verse. There are a lot of other hermeneutical uh, ways of looking at or uh, applications of uh, analyzing a verse, but you need to first look at the context. Once you have the context, then you can start applying all of your other hermeneutics to it. But um, context is king and interpreting what a verse is trying to tell us. We need to know who is being spoken to under what dispensation it is being spoken, and what the words around the verse or verses that we are looking at are directed to. Keep things in context and make all evaluations of this precious word with careful, thoughtful, and proper consideration. If you do that, then everything else will fall into its proper place, but you must get the context first. If you don't have the context right, you will get it wrong every time. Okay, we're going to be starting a series on Sunday, speaking about context. It comes from the Old Testament, okay? It is not in the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to get out of Deuteronomy for five weeks, and we're going to be in an Old Testament passage, okay? When we are in there, we're going to be looking, as we always do, for pictures of Christ, pictures of Jesus, okay? What is the context? It's called typology, Okay, this is something that happened in Israel thousands of years before the church was ever even considered. Okay, so the context, the historical context has nothing to do with the church. Okay, when Samson goes in and tears out the gates of a town and he carries them up to the top of the hill, that has nothing to do with the church, but it may have a typological signification. And so you can say, I understand that God is using that story to tell us something of what's going to happen in redemptive history when Christ comes. Okay, everybody got that? The context matters, but you can also have typological considerations, you can have prophetic considerations, 
And you can always, always going through the Bible have moral considerations. I don't care. David slept with another man's wife. You can might make a moral sermon out of that particular passage, can't you? You can make a moral passage out of Joseph's brothers selling him off to Egypt. Moral is the easiest part of the of the passage to make a sermon about. You know, I'm not in the life applications and trying to tell you how to live your life. If you know the word, then you don't need me to tell you that I will always try to throw in a couple moral applications during a sermon. That's not my focus though. My focus is to give you the mechanics of what is being said and then to give you the uh, typological pictures of what are being presented if it's a typological passage, and then any prophetic fulfillment that can be expected from that passage. That's what I dwell on, because the moral application ought to be obvious. We all ought to know, when I read this, that the Lord is unhappy with David for what he did, right? There you go. Okay, just so you know, we're going to be doing that. It'll be a five-week series, and I hope that you enjoy it. It's something that Sergio and I have been working on. He's still working on it right now. It's probably what? It's uh, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. It's 1 o'clock in the morning there, and he's still working on it. I guarantee it. He's been working on this for weeks and weeks and weeks. Rhoda did her part. He's now doing the editing and the video part, and it should be a great presentation come Sunday. Okay, we'll see. Um, 2.20. Let's see here. 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Oh, isn't this the most wonderful verse? Oh, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Isn't, oh, it's just wonderful. I mean, that in 6, what does he say right here? That's a, There's another one. These two verses are so precious. It says here, um, I'll go back to 11 and we'll, get, we'll end at 14. See with what large letters I have written to you, with my own hand, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Verse 14, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Tell me those aren't two marvelous verses. Let's read it one more time, and then we'll get into the anal analyzation. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. No no law, no works. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Isn't that marvelous? He fulfilled the law. Why would we go back under that yoke? 2.20, Paul just said, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. What the law could never accomplish, that of bestowing righteousness upon a sinful person, was accomplished through union with Christ who died under that same law. He writes in the same general manner to those in Rome as well in Romans chapter 6. Let me read you what he says there, 6, 3 through 6. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. 
For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Not a drop of water in that Romans passage. What do you mean? He said I was baptized. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Okay, let's see here. Um, uh, that's Romans 6, 3, uh, 3 through 6. From showing what the law could not do in the previous verse, he now shows what Christ's death can do for us in this verse. Paul saying, I have been crucified with Christ does not mean that he has somehow imitated Christ's death in a spiritual way such as, I have crucified my flesh just as Christ was crucified with me on the cross. Okay, that would be Catholic-y to kind of throw that in there. That is not what he is talking about. All right, rather, this is referring to what happens to us in God's eyes when we receive Jesus Christ. It is an ethical bond because of our faith in Jesus' death. He died on the cross. I have died with him. God deems me as dead to the law because of Christ, dead to the things of the world, and I am alive in Christ. That's how God sees me. He doesn't see me as I am because if he did, he'd put me in a trash heap of history right now. He sees me through the lens of Christ, and thank God for that. Rather, this is referring to what happens to us in God's eyes when we receive Jesus. It is an ethical bond because of our faith in Jesus' death. Christ was crucified on a real cross, and he really died. When we accept that he died on that cross and rose again, we too are counted as crucified with Christ. Why is this important? It is because what happened to Paul also happens to us. For Paul, he says, owing to his connection with the crucified, this is Vincent's word studies, owing to his connection with the crucified, he was like him, legally impure, and was thus an outcast from the Jewish church. He became dead to the law by the law's own act. In verse 310, Paul will say Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Where is that recorded? Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It begins with D. It ends with Deuteronomy. Anybody? Okay. When I gave the, uh, my introductory comments to the book of Deuteronomy during a sermon, I said that, that is the most Christological passage in all of Deuteronomy. There are all kinds of things in Deuteronomy that point to Christ that are very profound, but that is it. Without that, nothing else matters. I'm telling you, it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, and Paul will explain that to us. There he reached back to the words of the law itself, to explain what occurs in the life of one who receives Jesus Christ. According to Deuteronomy 21, 23, anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. Did Christ hang on a tree? Yes. Therefore, he became a curse. Okay, everybody got that? Therefore, in our acceptance of Jesus and fulfillment of the law, we became dead to the law through the death of Christ. That's what I was referring to in the previous verse. Of course, the argument might then be that if Christ's crucifixion was just, then by my act of uniting with him, I would become accursed of the law just as Christ was. Thus, he and I are both transgressors. But this is not so. Christ was not justly 
crucified for his own sins. He had none. Instead, he died for the sins of another. Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where it says that Christ became sin. Uh, let me, uh, yeah, uh, Christ became, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's it. Okay, so what that means, and I asked that girl today, when I was talking to her about Jesus, I said, okay, I want you to understand this so that you don't make this mistake again. You believe that Christ died for your sins? Yes. Okay. He went into the grave. Yes. He came out of the grave. Why? And I had to explain it to her. The wages of sin is death. If he had no sin, she said, then he had to come out of the grave. He, he couldn't stay in the grave. Okay. I said, so what stayed in the grave? What's in the grave? If he died for your sins and went into the grave and he came out without any sin because death couldn't hold him, then what's in the grave? She said, my sin. That's absolutely right. That's what this is telling us. Christ didn't die in his own sin. He died for our sin. That's why he became a curse for our sakes, not for his own sake. All right? Let me say it again. He who had no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. That's what occurred. Death could not hold him because he had none of his own sin. Therefore, when a believer dies with him, they can say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Once again, right there, eternal salvation. I don't know how anybody can come to the, the thought that if they've received Christ, they could lose their salvation. Christ did have to cut himself off. He's not going to cut off his own hand. He's not going to cut off his own arm. He's not going to cut himself off, and we are in him. It, it, salvation is eternal. All right? Christ was raised by the power of God, and therefore we are raised by that same power. The life of Christ is what God sees in us. Our earthly bodies count as nothing in the greater scope of things. That's why I keep telling people, don't worry about this life. If you're a believer, act like it. Yes, it stinks to be sick. My wife is sick right now, and I feel terrible for her, okay? That is bad, but it doesn't mean that if she dies tomorrow, I think, oh, all hope is lost. It's not. For her, hope is gained. She's standing there with the Lord. She is free from this body of death. Maybe if it happens to me, I'm not going to be. She went, tried to back up from me yesterday or two days ago when she was feeling sick. And she, I said, no, I'm not going to live my life in fear. I'm not going to do it. You're my wife and I love you. And I gave her a hug. She, was, she just doesn't want me to get sick. And I understand that. And I don't want to get sick either. But I'm not going to be in fear over this. I'm just not going to do it. I have no idea. If she, you know, she thinks maybe she has pleurisy or, you know, walking pneumonia. I don't know. We'll find out. But, hey, live your life. Don't be in bondage to the things of this world. Because when you're out of here, it's going to be a lot better. Paul even tells us that. Our earthly bodies count as nothing in the greater scope of things. Therefore, Paul says, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In our current walk, a walk which remains in the flesh, there's no doubt about it, get into my head and you'll find that out, we live by faith in the Son of God. We received him, we died with him, and we have a sure and grounded hope that we are his. As he arose, so shall we. And this is because he loved us and gave himself for us. It's not the other way around. The world is not about Charlie Garrett. It's not about Burke or anybody else in here. The world is about Jesus Christ. And when we come to him, we live 
with him and he lives with us. And this is the union that he spoke about with the, uh, the apostles on the night before he was crucified. In short, his perfect life died in fulfillment of the law. Having been hung on a tree in his death, he became a curse so that we could die to that law through faith in him. When we place our faith in him, the law is annulled in us. Now, remember what I just said. The law is annulled in us. The reason why that's important, and I've said this a couple of times. I'll be saying it in sermons in the coming weeks and uh, certainly throughout the book of Deuteronomy as well. Israel is a collective body. Individual Israelites can be saved out of the law. Okay, they come to Christ and they come out from under the bondage of the law. But Israel as a collective whole remains in the bondage of the law. When it says in the book of Hebrews, uh, he's speaking in the present tense. He says that which is annulled or passing away or whatever he says, he says it in the present tense. In other words, it hasn't happened yet. The law is annulled for each individual, but it is not annulled for Israel. I'm talking about the collective body of Israel. If it was, he would have said when Christ died, it was done and the law is annulled. He doesn't. He says it is passing away. Okay. And the choice is up to Israel when it happens. And we know the book is written. We know the timeline. We know what's going to happen, but they have to be the ones to make the call. And as it says, Jesus said it in Matthew. Um, I, I know I'm going to get the chapter wrong, but he says, um, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets, how I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers its chick under its wings, but you would not let me. Behold, I tell you, 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 speaking to Israel, the collective body will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We don't need to guess when Jesus is coming back to the world. He told us. He told us when he is coming back. It is when Israel as a collective body, meaning the leaders in Jerusalem who represent the whole in the Old Testament, the king represents the people. When King David did wrong, what happened? 70,000 people were killed. He represents the people. When the leaders of Israel call out and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ will return and he will save Israel. And it ain't happening until then. So much for the theology that says that we have to go through the tribulation period. We're not even a part of that. We've already done that. We've already called on the name of the Lord and the rapture is a completely separate event. That's why it's called the rapture. That's why it's called a mystery 30 years after Christ was ascended into heaven. It's because it pertains to us now who believe in Jesus Christ. There is a day when he is going to come and take us out of here. I feel so bad for people that can't divide the dispensations properly and come to the reasonable conclusion that we are not Israel. Okay. It is no longer it death. It no longer has power over us. Therefore, because we are dead to the law, but still alive in the flesh, we must be and we are living by faith in the Son of God. That's where we stand. I'm in this body which is broken. It is disgusting. I keep doing things I wish I wouldn't do. I think things I wish I wouldn't think. It goes on and on. Okay? I'm the least per perfect person that I know on this planet. Okay, I, there's some Democrats out in Washington, I think are probably on the same level, but I'm kidding. Anyway, um, I can't wait to be out of here. But while I am this body of death, which Paul acknowledges he has as well, by the way, where is it? Romans 7, uh, you know, I, I, the things I don't want to do, I do. And the thing, he says, who is going to free me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ, right? So Paul had the same struggle that you and I are having. Don't feel bad about it, but it, death 
That's what he's speaking about. It no longer has power over us. Therefore, because we are dead to the law, but still alive in the flesh, we must be and we are living by faith in the Son of God. That's where we stand. If we're not living by faith, then what are we living for? Because if I'm trying to live by my own goodness, it ain't working out. Okay? It's not working out. Life application. You who want to be under the law, don't you know what the law says? If you are under the law, you cannot be under Christ. It's impossible to be under both. Being under Christ means that you are accursed to the law. If you are still seeking justification through deeds of the law, then you cannot be under Christ. Thus, you are self-condemned. You are rejecting the only way of ever being justified before God. There is no other way to be justified before God but by the blood, the precious shed blood of Jesus Christ. Cling to Christ and cling to Christ alone. Reject any and all who would reinsert the law as a necessary requirement for standing justified before God or any other theology that you can come up with. There are people in the Catholic Church that pray to Mary, okay? They pray also to the saints. That is forbidden in Scripture. There is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says, okay? We cannot come to any other path and say, I'm going to get to God through that. It must be through the shed blood of Christ, because that's the only provision that God has made. He went through all of that redemptive history, all of that work with Israel, showing the world this body of law that is impossible to meet, which is his standard, in order to send his son to redeem the people of the world from that impossible standard. Why would he make another path to him? He would be contradictory, and it would not be the God of the Bible, because the God of the Bible is unified in his thought, in his thinking. He is not convoluted. He is not conflicted in any way, shape, or form. We got time for one more verse, 221. Do we? How long is this? Let me see how long this is. We got time. Okay. Oh, and we're going to finish the chapter, so good news. Verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Think of it. If anybody on this planet, if one person on this planet could meet the demands of the law, we didn't need Christ to come. That's what Paul is saying right there. If any person can prove that they have never sinned in the law, then we can forget the cross of Christ and we can just go out and, you know, try to do it on our own. That is not the case. There are several exceedingly important truths which are seen in this verse and which must be taken to heart. Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of Christ. Grace is getting what one does not deserve. That's correct. That's grace. The giving of Jesus Christ is the ultimate act of grace. No one on earth deserves what God has done through him. Not a person that was born before Christ, not a person that was born at the time of Christ, and no person after the time of Christ deserves what God did in Jesus Christ. That will take care of the argument about, by the way, about well, what about the guy that lived in uh, Papua New Guinea 427 years ago that never heard about Christ? It doesn't matter. We don't need Christ to go to hell. That is our default position already. We need Christ to not go to hell. That's why it doesn't matter. Every single person, whether it's a person born 427 years ago in Papua New Guinea, or if it's a person that lives in the most holy part of America where they have a church on every street and he has been flooded with Christianity all of his life, if he hasn't come to Christ, he is just as condemned as that guy in Papua New Guinea 427 years ago. Everybody got that? 
We don't need Jesus to go to hell. We need him to get out of that, okay? I do not set aside the grace of God. The giving of Jesus Christ is the ultimate act of grace. No one on earth deserves what God has done through him. All have sinned and all deserve death. And even if you haven't sinned, which you have, but even if you haven't, you've still inherited your father's sin. And you are under your federal head, who is Adam, and so you're condemned already anyway. That's John 3.18. Okay? No one, all have sinned, all deserve death, condemnation, and hell. But God sent Christ to redeem us from that sorrowful end. That's the lesson of the Bible, the wonderful lesson. Paul exclaims here that he does not set aside this gift, which is from God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is that gift. The word here is atheteo, and it means to make of no effect, to set aside or to break with faith. In the epistle to the Hebrews, when speaking of the law of Moses, the author uses the word athetesis, which is derived from atheteo. He uses this word to make a specific point concerning the law in Hebrews 7.18. I've already cited it probably 20 times today, but I'll read it right out of here so that you can see it. Hebrews 7.18. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment, meaning the law of Moses, because of its weakness and unprofitableness. It's translated in that verse as annulling. I'll read it again now that you know. For on the one hand, there is an annulling. That word, because of the former commandment, because of its weakness and unprofitableness. This word, athetesis, speaks of annulment, nullification, or abrogation. Paul understood that one cannot be under grace and under the law at the same time. The two are contradictory ideas, and either one or the other can be held to, but not both. If one chooses to be justified before God based on the law, then it is impossible to be justified before God based on the grace which is found in Jesus Christ. Everybody got that? One plus one will always equal two in theology. Likewise, the reciprocal is true. If one finds his righteousness in Christ who fulfilled the law, then one cannot find their righteousness in the law except as it has been granted through the work of Christ. If one claims to receive the grace of Christ and then attempts to obtain righteousness through the law, such as giving up on pork, which is according to the law, then they proclaim that Christ's fulfillment of the law and his death, which occurred for that fulfillment, was both pointless and unnecessary. This is found in Paul's next words, which say, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. For those who believe in God and who want to be pleasing to God, their deeds are done in an attempt to be righteous before him. That's why we do things. We want to make God happy with us so he doesn't cast us into hell. Ask anybody on the planet, because I've been all over this world, in every religion I've been in, people are trying to do things because they know there's a power that they need to be pleasing to. I don't care if they say they're an atheist. They still help old ladies across the road because they know that they're accountable for their actions. I've never been in a place and met a person that is completely devoid of understanding that they are accountable in some way or another. They may say they are, but they, they, you watch their actions and you know that they don't believe that. Okay, so giving up on pork, this is found in Paul's next words. Um, For those who believe in God and want to be pleasing to God, their deeds are done in an attempt to be righteous before him. A provision within the law allows for the law to grant this, and it's found, I already cited it earlier, Leviticus 18, verse 5, which is, the man who does the things of the law will live. However, there is the truth 
which is borne out in the rest of the Old Testament, which is that no person can perfectly keep the law. I know I keep saying the same thing again and again, but it's because Paul keeps saying the same thing again and again. This is clearly and precisely explained in the book of Romans. In Romans 3, 19 and 20, Paul says, let me take you there, 3, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 1, 2, 3, 3, 19 and 20. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. All right, I said this in a sermon not too long ago, and I'll say it in another one not too long from now, but Adam and Eve were told that they couldn't eat something in the Garden of Eden. If God didn't tell them that and they ate that thing, they could not be accounted for having done wrong because there's no law. But as soon as he gave the law, sin crept into their heart and death crept in with it. They sinned. They ate of the fruit which they were told not to. Without law, there can be no imputation of sin. That's why in Christ, we are without law and we are not imputed sin. Once again, eternal salvation. Okay, his words are clear. By deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. As this is the truth found in God's word, then the only way to be justified in his sight is through the grace of Jesus Christ. The same testament which proclaims one also proclaims the other. One cannot dismiss Romans without dismissing any other portion of the New Testament, including the record of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of this, if one fails to accept this premise and instead go, goes about seeking righteousness through deeds of the law, then for them, Christ died for nothing. There can be no grace for the one who seeks justification before God based on their deeds under the law. There can be only the expectation of judgment based on their deeds. Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. All they could do was expect judgment. What did they do as soon as they realized that they had done wrong? They sewed together fig leaves to try to hide their shame. They suddenly realized we're naked and we're exposed before God, and they tried to cover themselves up. That was a picture of works-based salvation. I'm going to work to hide my, my exposure, and God rejected that. Didn't work, okay? There can only be the expectation of judgment based on their deeds, and in this there can only be condemnation and e an eternal swim in the lake of fire life application, and we are just on time. One may attempt to be justified by their good deeds done under the law, or they may, be just, uh, they may be justified by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. There is no other option given for man to stand sinless and in righteousness before God. So I would ask everybody to choose wisely. All right, takes you back to, uh, what was it? Uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. He got all those cups in front of him. All these cups. Pass to God. Here's your path to God. Only one of them can save, and you better choose wisely. Right? That's kind of a little theological lesson for you there. The entire ending scene of that particular movie, every part of it, shows you a path that leads you along the gospel story. I don't know how people miss it. I'll go through it sometime. Watch it, and then we'll talk about it. You won't believe it. Every one of them. Every single one of them. The penitent man will pass. Only the person that humbles himself before God will pass, right? And then in the name of God, you'll be able to get through the maze. And what is the name of God? It's Jehovah, right? It's the Lord. Only in the name of the Lord can you be saved. And then you get to the step, and you got to step off in faith, okay? But it's not a step into 
to uh, darkness. You're not stepping into something that isn't revealed because you already had the clues given. You just step off and you will be saved. It's unbelievable how it matches. Whoever made that movie script probably didn't realize what they were doing. But if you follow it, you, it's like I can see the path of salvation there. What a, and then you get to the cups. And like I said, there's lots of paths to God and there's only one that can get you there, and it is the blood of Jesus Christ. That is it. It's just kind of an interesting thing. It's like watching the movie, um, uh, what's the guy that was in the uh, the boy that grew up in the fake world? Uh, uh, come on, you know, um, the act, oh, I'll think of it uh, in 10 minutes. He's that actor I don't like. He's a funny guy, and he grew up in a world, and it had the ocean, and it was oh, fake. Yeah, Jim Carrey. Truman the Truman Show. Man, the, the whole gospel story is in that as well. It's incredible. I'll tell you about it sometime, but we got to close. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the wonderful truth that Jesus Christ is the only path to God. And it's so sad that people that make these movies, they, they seem to realize that, and yet they reject the truths, which are even portrayed in movies like that. So help us, Lord, to follow the truth that Jesus Christ really did come, that he is the only way to be saved, and we can put all of our baggage on him, all of the things that we've done wrong, all of the things that we at night think wrong, we think incorrectly all the time. We can't even get away from our own thoughts, and yet you will forgive us of those things because of what Christ did. How gracious you are, how wonderful you are that you sent Jesus to redeem us from ourselves and from this fallen world. How wonderful it is. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you. And we do so in his beautiful name. Amen. You okay, Burke? Yes, sir. Never seen you get up and leave before, so I thought maybe you were mad at me. Okay, let me put that on uh, this button and we'll say goodbye to the folks. On